Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I am not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who actively seeks out airport chapels. I saw your post about that. Yeah, um, I finally made it to the O'Hare Airport Chapel when I got back to Chicago. Oh, because it's on the outside of security. Right. It's very nice. It's very Catholic. Sure. Are Uh, a lot of them really Catholic? No. O'Hare and Midway are both particularly Catholic, but other places I've been, they're either more just generally Christian or like the one in London was a little more interfaith. Cool. I tend to seek out airport yoga rooms, which are a cool thing that exists in airports now. And yeah. they're usually near the chapel, although in O'Hare they are not. Right. It seems to me like there was once a chapel where the, the meditation room is in O'Hare, but I don't know that that's true. Yeah. It's in that like <laughs> weird circular atrium thing over by the H gates. Yeah. And uh, uh, it's a cool room. I like it better than I like Midway's room. Just because Midway's is right off of security, and it's a little hectic right outside the door. Sure. Where I like that you kind of have to expedition to get to the one in O'Hare. I, I'm all for ease of access. I think they should be easy to get to, and not, like, hard for someone who is trying to seek them out. Sure. <laughs> now, in a airport chapel, is there, like, a minister or, like, someone there, or is it just a room where you can go and connect on your own? It depends. The one at Midway is always staffed pretty well. Um, I know, they have, like, a schedule of, like, this is when we're doing services in this faith. Yeah. So they must have a rotating selection of humans. But yeah, I um, I had a, a really fun conversation with an airport chaplain one time. He told me that he loved his job because he had a different congregation every day. That's adorable. It was very nice. He also told me he was very nervous because he was going on a date that night. Oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I liked him a lot. <laughs> I like your ability to just, like, make best friends with chaplains everywhere. <laughs> That's still not the weirdest. Um, and now we're best friends with a priest story I have. I'm sure. But don't tell it now because we're going to want to hold on to that one for later sometime, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll get to that one. <laughs> All right. Well, if I was going to make a really bad segue, I would ask you if you went to confession in the O'Hare Airport Chapel because we're talking about confession this week. We are talking about confession. And... I did not, but I do feel like I need to go to confession. Um, Not because of anything in particular that I have done. Don't worry. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know your life. Um, But it's just, it's been a while, and it's a thing that I like. So I just ordered a new prayer book that has an examination of conscience, which is like some prep work that you can do for confession. So I'm waiting on that, and then I'm probably going to get a confession. Nice. Yeah. That's so exciting. I think if you feel like you have something, yes, I'm like, ooh, did something fun happen? Tell me about your life. No. I Nothing like that. It's okay. just been a while. Sure. <laughs> it's a thing that's nice to come back to. Yeah. All right. So last we left off, we were starting to move away from public confession into private confession, right? Correct. We had gone past public confession. We had gone past tariff penance. Yes. And, That's the words I was looking for. Yeah, and we're moving into what modern confession looks like. So we got all the way up to the Fourth Lateran Council in the 13th century, and this is the point where everyone was required to go to confession once a year. Yeah, one confession and one communion, right? Yeah, because you do the confession before you get the communion. Yes. Because you can't have any outstanding mortal sins. Mm-hmm. 
And this is also when we got Seal of Confession, very private. And then we made penance easier because it wasn't person, it was... Collective. Yeah. Interesting thing that I learned about the Seal of Confession is it's technically required for the priest to forget what you told them. Wait, I think I saw you have this conversation on Twitter. <laughs> I did. I have. I had this conversation on Twitter with a really cool priest in... I think she lives in Tucson, which is fun. That's fun. Shout out to the Tucsonians we know. Yeah. Is the Tucsonian the right word? Aaron will let us know at some point. I'm sure he will. <laughs> all right. So how did we get to modern day confession from all of that? Yeah. So now that people have to go to confession, we start to see some interesting debates arise. In the past, it was easy to assume that people were genuinely sorry for what they'd done because you were only confessing the, like, big, earth-shattering sins, and you only went to confession when you had to. Yeah. Now, it's confess on a regular schedule or go to hell. So you're probably hearing about more smaller stuff. Yeah, definitely smaller stuff. And also you're wondering, are people really repentant, or are they just scared of excommunication or hell? Sure. And is that why they're confessing? I mean, I guess the like, there's a fine line between genuinely sorry and worried about going to hell. Yeah, because you might not be sorry for the specific things you did. You might be sorry that you didn't get a confession. And is that enough? Who knows? I guess that's the question. That's the debate. Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century theologian and philosopher, he believed that there were two things that were required to actually be forgiven. He said that the ceremony part, so the priest telling you the specific words... You're absolved of your sins. Mm -hmm. And he also believed that you had to actually be sorry for those sins that you confessed. Ah, so you could go through the motions, but if you personally aren't sorry in your heart, then it doesn't count. Right. You're still going to go to hell. Yes. But there were other people, another 13th century theologian and philosopher, Dun Scotus, believed that all you needed was the priest to say that you were forgiven. All right. So at that point, it doesn't matter what's in your heart. What matters is that you did the thing. Yeah, the the magic spell that the priest says over you... Does it all. Does it. Wipes it away. Yeah. Lots of debate going back and forth. Yeah, for sure. A couple fun Aquinas thoughts. Sure. More on confession. Going to confession is not required if you have not committed a mortal sin according to God's law, but you are obligated to follow the church's rules. But it's not a mortal sin if you don't follow those rules. (laughs) (laughs) That's so convoluted. (laughs) I just, I just like, it'd be funnier to me if it was a mortal sin, because then not going into confession would require you to go to confession. Yep. But not, not a weird cycle. That's maybe even more convoluted than whatever <laughs> Thomas Aquinas is trying to tell us. He also said that confession should not be made publicly, but privately, lest others be scandalized and led to do evil through hearing the sins confessed. I love that. <laughs> so don't give anybody any ideas. I think one thing that I both love and hate about all these theologians we talk about on the show is how little trust they have for average people. That they're all like, if you talk about something scandalous, everyone's just going to get an idea. Okay, they probably think that if you talk about sex, everyone's going to think about sex because they're all always thinking about sex. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's like a solid half of what they wrote. Yeah. Just like, don't think about sex, don't think about sex, don't think about sex. I'm solving my sex thinking problems by talking about thinking about sex. Yep. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, that's certainly Augustine. But <laughs> yes, absolutely. But Augustine also was his own situation. Yeah, he, had, he has a lot of issues. 
another problem that we start to get into, though, in the 13th century is that everybody has to do a confession, but a lot of people would wait until right before Easter because you had to have it done before Easter. So isn't there, like, a line to go to confession? Yeah, there were reports of some priests having to hear, like, 300 confessions in a day. Oof, that's a lot. And I imagine that even if you have to, like, forget about whatever was said the moment it's done being said, there's still an amount of, like, emotional and mental output that happens for the priest who is hearing the confession. And so that's a lot of giving energy to other people. Oh, yeah. Certainly not great. No. Not recommended. (laughs) So some priests would just get fed up and offer general absolution without hearing the confessions. Great. Just like, everyone in this line, I'm saying the magic words now. Bye. Pretty much. (laughs) This is not an officially condoned thing. I'm sure. (laughs) But But desperate times call for desperate measures. Definitely done. (laughs) Around this time, we also get confession manuals, also called summas, and they start to be pretty popular. They're like instructions for priests on how to do confession, how to counsel people through it. And a lot of them just instruct priests to interrogate the penitents instead of just listening to sins. That's not right. <laughs> I think that's the opposite of how that's supposed to work, right? Um, I don't know specifically that it is wrong, but it it certainly feels wrong. <laughs> sure. One manual that I found that was less bad, it was a flowchart, basically, that started with each of the seven deadly sins and then got more and more specific. Okay. And it was treated kind of like a diagnosis, as if the priest were a doctor and trying to figure out what the sickness of the person's soul is. All right, that feels more safe and reasonable. And, like, (laughs) sticks to not judging and more just investigating. To be fair, I'm pretty sure it was still very judgmental. (laughs) I'm I'm not here to say that this comes from a place of judgment, but it probably came from a place of judgment. (laughs) Another one that was definitely judgmental... Just really focus on masturbation. Of course. And it said, quote, male penitents who failed to admit it were to be relentlessly challenged. So you're just, every guy who comes into the confession with us to be like, so do you masturbate? When was the last time you masturbated? We all do it. Tell me about it. You have to confess it. Basically. Ugh. <laughs> One of the problems with these super specific lines of questioning is that they actually gave some people some ideas. Which was exactly what Thomas Aquinas was worried about. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. So people weren't going to confession until they were, like, 14 or so. Uh Uh-huh. But... That's a lot of teenage boys. Yeah. (laughs) They might have given them some ideas that they had not thought of yet. Yeah. Some of them might have been right on the cusp of having decided that this was a thing they could do. Yeah. And then (laughs) got interrogated into realizing it was a thing they could do. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Some of the authors of these manuals actually realized that this was a problem, but they decided it was worth the risk uh, for the chance of saving a soul from eternal damnation. All of this comes back to the problem that masturbation will send your soul to hell forever. (laughs) Yeah, this was really a focus. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Everybody calm down. I really, I really like this one in particular. John Gerson, a 15th century theologian, and the Chancellor of the University of Paris, he suggested this tip. Be very casual when talking about self-abuse, as if it's not a sin. Then, when the person confesses, condemn the behavior as abominable. Oh no! <laughs> That's just mean! 
I thought that one was really funny. That is hilarious and also cruel. <laughs> Another problem with these super specific manuals is they cause people to think a lot more about very specific sins and how bad they all were in comparison to each other and really obsess over this. And this caused outbreaks of scruples, especially in monastic communities. Scruples, are, it's basically just excessive anxiety over minor imperfections. So it becomes like a mass hysteria problem. I don't know that I would call it mass hysteria because it's not a thing that happens. They're not like working each other up. Yeah, it's it's more it's more of like a obsessive compulsive disorder type thing. Wow. So just like crazy anxiety over sinning in any sort of minute and specific way. Yeah, so people would go to confession like all the time and be confessing everything. Wow, that's terrifying. Yeah. Thomas A. Kempis, a 13th century German priest and author of devotional books, he compared scruples to hypochondria, and he encouraged monks to get over it and take communion instead of avoiding it every time they had some minute sin. All right. So he was a welcome voice of reason in the 13th century. Thank goodness. (laughs) No wonder people are, like, bricking themselves up in walls and all that stuff during this time. People are freaking out about confession. Oh, very concerned. And there were also a lot of women who were uh, obsessed with confession in the 13th century. And that was a lot of those mystic women who are in their little walled-off areas. Yeah, their anchoresses and everything. Thank you. Thank you for the word. That's that's (laughs) the word. (laughs) I think it's fascinating. So I know know a little bit about some anchoresses. Okay, yeah. I was blanking on that. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of them, major cases of scruples. Cool. I mean, not cool, but makes sense that that would happen. So when do things relax? Do they ever relax? Please tell me they relax. Well, I have a couple examples of these women in the 13th century. Okay, tell me. So Mary of Aineggies? I don't know how to say that one. That was, I was going through the words I need to look up how to say. That was what I missed. Okay. In her biography, it was written, If it sometimes seemed to Mary that she had committed a little venial sin, she showed herself to the priest with such sorrow of heart, with such timidity and shame, and with such contrition that she was sometimes forced to shout like a woman giving birth from the intense anxiety of heart. Oh man, just for little tiny things? Yeah. But to make you feel better, on the other end of the spectrum, in the late 15th century, Catherine of Siena didn't go to confession for 25 years. And this made the priest who was her confessor very nervous that she would be excommunicated, but she reassured him that she had not sinned in all that time. Well, there you go. <laughs> was she a nun? I think she was. <laughs> but she probably sinned. In I'm sure she sinned years. at some point. <laughs> if there are minute enough sins that like monks and nuns and are giving are committing them on a daily basis, then there is no way that someone didn't commit a sin for 25 years. But I just love that. She's just like, no. No. Can't touch me. I just feel like the priest would be nervous because at some point he's going to learn a lot of crazy things he didn't need to know. That might be true. (laughs) People were getting more and more concerned about their sins. The confession was becoming more and more of a big deal. Priests started to take advantage of this. By the 15th century, it was a trope that confessors were crooks. Oh, that they were, like, extorting money out of people for their confessions? Yeah, they would take bribes to your confession, uh, they would seduce female penitents during confession, and they would gossip with other priests about what they had been told. So many rules being broken there. Not, not a good look. And this, not a good look, 
brings us to the Reformation. There we go. <laughs> I knew it was coming soon. Yeah, there were a lot of other things going on, but confession was definitely a major point of debate during this time. Was it? In, did it make it on the list of things that Luther pinned to the church door? Yeah, I believe so. That makes sense. I couldn't tell you, like, which number of his 95 it was. That's fine. I, I'm sure it was in there. There are Lutherans <laughs> listening to the show who probably know the answer. Oh, probably. You know who you are. <laughs> Send fine. us an email. I'm not a Lutheran. <laughs> <laughs> Theologians were arguing that it was blasphemous for a priest to intervene between a person and God. Sure. And the bad reputation of confessors didn't help. Oh, I can imagine. A lot of these challenges to confession came from the Dutch Christian humanist, Dersidius Erasmus. Great. Don't people just call him Erasmus now? Yes. I didn't realize he had a first name or that it was so hard to pronounce. I I mean, I don't know how hard these things are to pronounce or if I'm just bad at pronouncing things. No, I think <laughs> some of them are just hard to pronounce. All right. Thank you. I appreciate your charity. You know I'm here for you. Erasmus argued that Confession was an artificial legal construct of the church, and that there is no need for a priest, no need of absolution. Sins are forgiven when the penitent makes a direct act of contrition to Jesus Christ. Well, okay then. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, John Calvin, Martin Luther, not fans of confession either. Calvin was not a fan of private confession. He argued that the laying on of hands in penance is a ceremony ordained by men, not by God. One that ought to be classed among things indifferent and outward exercises. Things that are indeed not to be despised, but that ought to occupy a lower place than those commanded to us by God's word. So he just doesn't think it's a priority. Yeah, he's like, this is not necessarily bad, but it's not a real thing. We made it up. Fair. <laughs> See, when you said that he wasn't a fan of private confession, I was about to be like, oh man, does Calvin want everyone to go back to sackcloth and beating their chests? No. I was surprised. I thought he would have a much harsher stance on this. Same. So, I mean, I guess good for you, Calvin, for being moderate about something. Yeah. And then his other thing was that absolution is just a symbol. It doesn't actually forgive you. Like, a, a priest absolving you of your sins is just a symbol. Sure. But also, didn't Calvin believe that some people were just going to go to hell anyway? Yeah. So I guess that helps. Calvin was a, a predestination guy, so... Yeah. yeah. It doesn't... It, it really doesn't matter to him. <laughs> If you're going to hell, you can you can uh, confess all you want and be absolved all you want. It's not going to help you. That's fair. So I yeah. see why he is limitedly interested in confession. Yeah, I honestly need to read more about Calvinism because that's... All I know about Calvinism, I learned from AP Euro. Nice. <laughs> but I know just enough to get by in a pinch. Perfect. That's all you need, really. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah, Calvin, he did advocate for public communal confession at church services. He thought it was an okay thing to have around. He said, besides the fact that ordinary confession has been commented by the Lord's mouth, no one of sound mind who weighs its usefulness can dare disapprove it. For in every sacred assembly, we stand before the sight of God and angels. What other beginning of our action will there be other than the recognition of our own unworthiness? But that, you say, is done through every prayer, or whenever we pray for pardon, we confess our sin. Basically, it's just a part of prayer. Stop making it a thing. Yeah, it doesn't have to be <laughs> such a big deal. Uh, Luther, like, he went further. He once organized a public burning of the Anglica, which was a confessor's manual. Oh, wow. That's hardcore. <laughs> yeah, not a fan. Once we start burning books, you know people got serious. 
He also said that the Fourth Lateran Council was the greatest plague on earth through which Rome has bewildered the consciences of all the world, brought so many souls to despair, and degraded and oppressed all mankind's faith in Christ. So that's the council that said you have to go to confession and communion once a year. Yeah. Wow. He also said that confession is a kind of rape, and the Pope is the Antichrist who breaks open the bridal chamber of Christ and makes all Christian souls into whores. Oof. <laughs> Bold words from Martin Luther. Yeah. All right, Luther. <laughs> Whatever you say. So he clearly had strong feelings. Clearly. I mean, Luther had strong feelings on a lot of things, but this is intense even for him, I feel like. Yeah. Oh, man. He, he has some interesting turns of phrase, if you yeah. really get in there. I feel like there's a little bit of shock and awe happening here. He was a showman in some ways. Oh, for sure. In response to both the bad priests and the Reformation, we get the Counter-Reformation. Yes, indeed. The Catholics go all out. Yeah. And so confession was a major topic at the Council of Trent in the mid-16th century. Some of the highlights were a crackdown on bad priests and better training for the other priests and affirming that it was necessary to list all your mortal sins out to the priest one by one. We wanted to make that clear. Sure. Nuns had to confess once a month. Also, you had to promise not to sin in the future. That was, ah. a, that was a part of it. But, like, everyone's going to break that promise, so why make it? Well, it's supposed to be that you do not intend to do the same thing that you just confessed. Ah, that you've, like, learned from your mistakes or whatever. Yeah, because that last one was in response to a Protestant argument that confession was basically a get-out-of-jail-free card, and it would just cause a cycle. So if, like, I can kill someone and then go to confession, and then I'm all good... Then why stop? Right. Mm -hmm. I feel like killing someone is, like, a bold idea, but if you're, like, stealing from your neighbor's crops... Sure. You know? Yeah, and that's... That's probably a more reasonable example than the one I gave. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, if you steal and then they're all forgiven and whatever, then you can just keep doing it again. And as long as you get in that one last confession before you die, then you're fine. Yeah. So it's probably good that you try and make people promise to stop. Right. And that also goes hand in hand with the actually being sorry. Sure. <laughs> I guess that makes sense then. You sort of turned me around on that one. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to have in there. If, if yeah. we're doing this, you should probably... Yeah, I guess it's it. not like, I promise to never sin ever again. It's like, I promise that I've learned from my mistakes about this one particular sin that I've committed. And that makes more sense. Yeah, but it is specifically, to the best of your ability, promise that you're not going to do it again. Sure, which feels extreme, but I understand why it needs to be there. <laughs> also at this council, they stated that Fear of hell made for imperfect confession. This was also called attrition instead of contrition. But such fearful sorrow was nevertheless a gift from God and would prepare a soul for the desire for justice and the reception of God's grace. Okay. So fear makes it not as good, but it might help you get there. (laughs) (laughs) It's got its place. (laughs) It can be helpful. I love the the weird comments on fear of hell. (laughs) Yeah. One of the people present at the Council of Trent, Cardinal Charles Borromeo, he made his own particular mark on confession. He invented the confessional. Oh, the little booths. Yeah. He invented it in 1576 in Milan. Cool. And he created it to stop priests from propositioning women during confession. Of course he did. (laughs) Because of course that was a problem. Yeah, it unfortunately was. 
The idea was that the little grill and then the curtain would help the priest maintain custody of the eyes. Ah, so he can't wander. Yeah. Before this, the confessor would sit in a chair and the penitent would kneel at their feet, sometimes even resting their head on the confessor's lap. That's weird. Which is weird. That's super weird and I don't like it. (laughs) And confessionals, they got more and more popular, but because it was pretty expensive to build them because they're big old wooden boxes. Yeah, and there's a lot of detail and you need a lot of lumber, I'm sure. Yeah, very ornate often. Um, It took about 200 years for them to become the norm. Wow. I figured it would take a long time for them to spread, but 200 years is a long time. I mean, they, they were definitely growing throughout the whole time, but it took about 200 years for them to be like... Just how confession was done by almost everybody. Yeah. And for them to, like, build them in every new church going forward. Yeah. Also, confessionals didn't work. (laughs) Of course. Some confessionals had secret doors uh, so that the confessor and penitent could hold hands. Of course. Or do whatever. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Brian's not going to think about what happens in the confessional. (laughs) What happens in the confessional stays in the confessional. It's the seal of confession. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Tell that to the entire 15th century. (laughs) They needed to be better. They were doing it wrong. (laughs) Sure. They're supposed to forget it. (laughs) I also was delighted in that Twitter conversation. A bunch of the priests that were on that thread were like, no, we actually do forget. I appreciate that I've given permission to forget. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I mean, it's probably not stuff you want to, like, keep thinking about. Because it's either, like, boring (laughs) or it's, like, sad. Yeah. No, not not a great thing to have weighing on your mind. No, for sure. (laughs) And then, like, the priest is going to confession to another priest being like, I can't stop thinking about this thing that was in confession, and now I'm sinning because I'm breaking the seal of confession, and it just turns into a whole mess. I think thinking about it, uh, that would be considered scruples. Sure. (laughs) If you're that concerned. Yeah, I just think it, like, it's really easy to turn it into a circular thing. You get scruply. We try our best to do that. Yeah. (laughs) To go into cycles of silly concern. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) So, next major development is in 1910, Pope Pius X lowered the age of First Communion to seven, and this also effectively lowered the age of First Confession to that, to seven as well. Wow, seven feels really young. It does, and a lot of people even then were not huge fans of that, because before it was generally 12 to 14, Mm -hmm. some people not until like 18. Yeah. But yeah, this was a standardizing getting it down much lower. This was really more about making people emphasize communion more. Sure. And the reconciliation or confession part of it was just kind of a a side effect. That makes sense. If the rules are that those two things go hand in hand, if you're trying to introduce communion earlier, you kind of on accident have to introduce confession. Right. And not necessarily a good thing because especially we were still pretty harsh in the way confession was done, or it was very accusatory. And so doing that to the kids is not great. No, and I feel like then you get scruply children. Exactly. <laughs> so not, not a great thing. Also, at this time, uh, Pope Pius recommended that people receive communion daily if possible. But That's so, even more confession. Yeah, instead of, instead of yearly, as a lot of people did. Okay. And so this is when we get into the era that a lot of people, when they think of very traditional confession, like once a week... In the box. Yeah. This is first half of the 20th century is basically that era. Cool. And because you can't receive communion if you have an unconfessed mortal sin. So people would generally be going to church on Sunday, confess on Saturday or Sunday before 
they go yeah. to church. Yeah, like how early does confession open before services? It varies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you probably have to offer some sort of like time before the first mass of the day. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people would do it Saturday afternoon, evening. Sure. And you know, that I guess just don't have a wild Saturday night. Yeah. <laughs> don't do anything crazy. So yeah, this was peak confession. Great. Then we get into the 60s, and this is when everybody's getting crazy liberal ideas. Crazy liberal ideas. <laughs> around the Vatican II era. Yeah. One of the interesting developments we get is we bring back that general absolution from when priests were tired. Oh, you can just like, and all of you are free of your sins. Goodbye. Yeah. But different styles, it was being used as a community thing. Because to talk about more communal sins, like racism. Oh, sure. Where the priest is absolving everyone of, like, an institutional sin. Yeah. Those are ideas that are starting to develop. Also, people not liking the idea of individual confession, the priest being the mediator in that. Oh, because it's sort of an independence thing and a my life is my life thing. Yeah. There's a lot of mixed reasons, but but it starts to become more popular to not confess your sins individually to a priest. Interesting. And this is still not sanctioned. Yeah. It's just a prevailing attitude. Yeah. And so this is also how confession is often done in Anglican and Lutheran churches, where it's during a normal service, the priest, pastor, minister, whatever, will like say a thing with all of the the people in the congregation. They're like, we are sorry for our sins, the bad things we've done, the things that we have not done that we should have done. Like, they'll say something like that, and then the priest will say, God forgives you. Etc., etc. Yeah. Anglicans and Lutherans sometimes do individual confession, but it's less common than Catholics. So it's, yeah, it's that just in the church service. Mm -hmm. In 1974, the Vatican released a document called the Order of Penance, And this was a result of the Second Vatican Council, but it was a little delayed in getting details ironed out. And it was to more formally address these changes in attitudes towards confession. Sure. And what did they decide? They introduced a communal penance service where people still confess individually, but are all in the same room, and they say some communal prayers. Okay. So it's like an optional add-on. Yeah. It's its own separate service. It's not a mass. Mm-hmm. But it's opportunity for shared prayer to kind of capture that community institutionalized sin thing that people had been thinking about. Makes sense. But they still keep the individual confession is still the sort of primary means of forgiveness. Right. That's still very important. Mm-hmm. Um, they also shifted the wording to make the sacrament more conversational and more focused on mercy instead of judgment. That's nice. Yeah. Very welcome change. Yeah. I can imagine. So an example would be the old wording was just, uh, may our Lord Jesus Christ absolve you, and by his authority I absolve you for your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And then the newer version was, God, the Father of mercies, has reconciled the world to himself through the death and resurrection of his Son, and has poured forth the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of sins. May he grant you pardon and peace through the ministry of the church. And I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah. So it definitely gets a little softer around the edges. Yeah. And Otherwise, it feels kind of mechanical. 
Yeah. And it definitely, at different points in history, was very much a, like, these are the magic words, you say them, you're forgiven, next. Go forth. <laughs> Another way to make this softer is they started moving out of the confessional into, like, conference rooms or offices and doing more face-to-face confession. No longer, like, well, you can kneel on a kneeler, mm-hmm. but a lot of people would just sit in a chair face-to-face and have a conversation. That makes sense. And people were encouraged to say penance or reconciliation instead of confession. Nice. Starting to change the wording around it a little bit. Yeah, trying to make it get more of that mercy. Yeah, makes sense. And this document also said that general absolution is allowed, but only in extreme circumstances, like in remote places where there are not enough priests to hear all of the confessions. Sure, so like right before Easter, you can go back and do a big sit down, everybody's absolved. This is more like if you're in the middle of nowhere, like in the forest. Sure. (laughs) But if you're in the middle of nowhere in the forest, you probably have the correct priest to parishioner ratio. Or is it that, like, if there's a traveling priest coming to a remote population, they can general absolution them? More like that. Okay. It's like in, right now there's a conversation going on about the possibility of married priests. Okay. But it's only being considered for places in South America where there are not enough priests. All right. Because there's just not enough men who are willing to take vows of chastity, but they also still need priests, and ideally priests of the population of which they are ministering to? Yeah. So it's it's that kind of thing where it's like, if there's not a better option, it's better that people get absolved of their sins, we guess. Sure. <laughs> we'll take it. Today, there just aren't a lot of people who go to confession all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's The numbers keep declining. But I mean, that's kind of true of church attendance in general. Yeah. So they're probably correlated. It does seem to be that even people who go to church every Sunday a lot of them just don't go to confession. Sure, I mean, you go to church every Sunday, and you were saying at the beginning that you haven't been to confession in a while. That's true. You are one of the statistics, Brian. I'm, I'm the problem. <laughs> Brian is not the problem. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people will go to their confession before their first communion, and then not really again. Wow. Maybe they'll get talked into it when their kids are doing their first communion. Sure. <laughs> That's where the priest must be like, ooh boy. Buckle up. Yeah. We're going to be in here for a minute. <laughs> if you're curious about what goes on in the box or I'm in the I'm super curious about what goes on in the box. Please tell me. Uh, just like a general overview, the priest will welcome you, say like a short blessing or maybe a scripture passage, and then you and the priest both do the sign of the cross, and you begin your confession with, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been blanked since my last confession, which is... The worst part. I'm sure. Yeah, it's been seven years since my last confession, yeah, and, and then you feel so judged. Yeah, you have to, like, do a lot of counting at some point if you don't remember. It's been most of my life since my last confession. What do you say at your first confession? Do you just say, I've never been to confession? Yeah, and I think they probably know. Well, sure. But, like, if you're teaching the children what to say in the confessional, like, what do you teach them to say the first time? It's been seven years since my last confession. <laughs> that feels cruel. I think you tell them to say, this is my first confession. Sure. <laughs> um, I don't know why I said I think. I've done that. That's what you tell them to say. And the priest also already knows. Well, yes. <laughs> I would be surprised if the priest didn't already know. <laughs> when the small child steps into the confessional. Right. <laughs> so then you, you confess the sins. You can either, like, just... Some people will do, like, a list... Some people will just, like, have a conversation be like, these are some things that have been on my mind. 
and it'll be more like a free therapy session. Sure. Um, sometimes the priest will ask you, um, have you done this thing? And it's weird. <laughs> yeah. You're like, fine. Yeah, I feel called out. I, See, my, my thought was like, do you go chronologically? Do you go in order of severity? I don't. What's the prevailing rule on these things? I don't do a list like I think you're you're thinking. It's more sure. like a these are these are some areas where I have not been doing a good job. Cool. I guess in my head it's always like if I had to go to confession, what would I say? And the answer would be a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like trying to categorize my thoughts. <laughs> yeah, and you can also say at the end. For these and anything else that I have failed to mention. <laughs> good, good. That's a good COA. <laughs> Just, so you say all your things and you guys have your chat and then yeah. there's like a bit at the end. Yeah, then the priest will propose an act of penance. Might be a prayer or a thing that you have to do. Contemplate nature. Yeah, contemplate nature. As was given one time to a friend of mine, which is very funny to me. <laughs> sure. Uh, and then you say the... Act of contrition, which is a prayer that is just, I'm sorry. Cool. And then the priest will absolve you of your sins, and you're free to go. There you go. Freer, lighter, ready for communion, all oh, the yeah. good stuff. You've filled up your grace tank. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that analogy. <laughs> Filling up the grace tank. Yeah, I think that one is Anakin's dad. Okay. Our friend Anakin. I think his dad is the one who says, fill up the grace tank. If it's not, I'm sure he'll let me know. Yes, someone, <laughs> someone's dad said that, and they listen to the show. And it's a, it's a very dad thing, which is yeah. probably why I love it so much. It is a hundred percent why you love it so much. <laughs> all right, is that all we have on confession, Brian? That's what I've got on confession. Awesome. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it is time for the patronage pop quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they are the patron of. I'm ready, Ryan. Who do we have this week? This week we have St. Fiacre. I don't even know how to spell that. Well, I'll, I'll tell you after the episode. Okay. <laughs> so he was born in the 7th century in Ireland. He grew up in a monastery where he became very educated, especially in the knowledge of healing herbs. His skill came to be known pretty far and wide, and people began coming to the monastery to be healed by him. He was annoyed. <laughs> because all he wanted was a life of solitary prayer, as so many guys do. I was going to say, did he live in a cave? <laughs> I'm waiting for the cave to show up. Did he? Um, we'll see. Keep telling the story. Maybe a yeah. cave will appear. <laughs> I honestly don't remember if he actually ended up in a cave or just seems like he should have. He totally thinks seems <laughs> like he should have. <laughs> so he was annoyed by all of these people because all he wanted was solitary prayer. So he packed up and he fled to France. Sure. Because there's less people there or something. Yeah. And when he finally found a place to settle down, he was given a small hermitage in the forest beside a spring, um, and it was given to him by the local bishop, Faro. Okay, so maybe not a cave, but he still was a hermit. Yeah. Hermitage may or may not have been a cave in a forest. Cool. Some sort of hut. Yeah. That's why I wasn't sure. I knew it was something akin to that. Yeah. Cave-like object. Yeah. He also asked if he could have land for a garden for food and healing herbs. The bishop told him that he could have as much land as he could plow in one day. Okay, so that's probably not a lot of land. Yeah. But also, one makes... would think. Ooh. Early the next morning, Fiacre went out with his spade and he began to drag it behind him. 
Anywhere the spade touched, trees were toppled, bushes were uprooted, and the soil was entrenched. So he's Monk Paul Bunyan. <laughs> did, did Paul Bunyan just, like, drag it behind him? No, but he, like, fells tree, like, whole trees in a single swipe and clears forests and does all sorts of remarkable land clearing. Are you sure? Yeah. He's just, like, Monk Paul Bunyan. <laughs> Where's his giant ox? He does not have a giant ox, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but he does have a nosy neighbor. Okay. A local woman watched this happening and was understandably alarmed. Sure. So she ran to the bishop to tell him that Fiacre was a sorcerer. Okay. The bishop disagreed and decided that it was a miracle instead. I like this. <laughs> this is a good bishop. <laughs> On this large patch of land that he was able to clear in one day, Fiacre built a cell with a garden and an oratory in honor of Mary and also a hospice for travelers. Oh, wow. So now he's not in a cave. Now he's in, like, he's got a hut and a tiny church and a hospital and all the things. Yeah. yeah nice little compound he's yeah. got there. One man way station. Yeah. A lot of people would come to him for healing and advice and just to make a pilgrimage to this miraculous garden. Sure. His healing went well beyond normal herbal medicine. He was known to completely heal people from blindness, polyps, and fevers just by the laying on of hands. He was also particularly good at healing hemorrhoids. Okay. I think this is the second saint we've had that is particularly good at healing hemorrhoids. That's so bizarre. <laughs> he was also known as being very welcoming to travelers, but not so much to the female ones. Oh no. No women were allowed to enter his hermitage or the chapel. Any women who did enter were divinely punished. Oh god. In 1620, a woman from Paris entered the chapel... And she immediately became, quote, distracted. Oh, God. And even after leaving, she was never able to recover her senses. That's terrifying. Yeah, I... I don't know what that even means. I don't either. <laughs> terrifying, like I said. She just went on to live a very spacey life, I guess. Okay. Fiacre uh, died on August 18th in 670 of natural causes. And people continued coming to his hermitage for hundreds of years to pray and be healed. There is a hotel in Paris that is named after Fiacre, and in the 1640s, it became the first place in the city to rent carriages. So carriages and later taxis became known as Fiacres. That's adorable! Yeah. So that is Saint Fiacre. So, Shannon, what is Saint Fiacre the patron of? Is he the patron saint of taxi drivers? He is. Yay! <laughs> I had so many ones early in the story that I was like trying to think maybe he could be, and then at the end it came to me, and it was perfect. Yeah, that one was uh, was a pretty easy one. Sure. <laughs> but it's also a really good story. Yeah. And there's a couple of things he could also have been patrons of. He could have patron saint of plowmen, or something to do with plowing. And he is the patron of gardeners. Okay, there we go. What's the full list? So the full list is against barrenness, against fistula, against hemorrhoids, against piles, against sterility, against syphilis, against venereal disease, uh, for box makers, cab drivers, costermongers. I don't, do you know what those are? I have at some point, but I don't remember now. <laughs> I don't know what that one means. They sell something. Maybe. Uh, for florists, gardeners, hosiers, puerters, taxi drivers, and tile makers. 
Wow. I was also going to guess against hemorrhoids because I thought it was hilarious. Okay, so they're florists. Costermongers are florists? Costermongers are florists. Okay, great. Thank you for Googling <laughs> that for us. Yeah, I, it would have bugged me if I didn't know. <laughs> That's real. All right, well, thank you all so much for listening this week. If you are enjoying the show, go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or a review. They help so much with having other people find the show. So it really would mean a lot to us if you could drop a rating or a review this week. Another great way to connect with us is you can email us at sundayschoolforheathens at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at school number four heathens or like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash school number four heathens. Our music for the show is all by Adam Griffin. You can check out his stuff at alteringgravity.wordpress.com. And our logo and editing are both by David Griffin, who is staying in a really sweet Airbnb in Australia right now, and I'm kind of jealous. Thank you all so much for listening, and amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm -hmm.